Turn to 2 Timothy with me, and uh, I'm going to get a little crazy today, and uh, we're going to read the whole epistle together uh, before we get into the teaching. So short announcements, long Bible reading, okay? Doesn't get any better than that. Will you guys stand with me if you're able to stand as we read the Word of God? And uh, it's four chapters, shorter chapters, and just keep in mind as we read this, this is Paul's last... um, this is, this is Paul's last letter. This is right before uh, he will go to die and be beheaded by Caesar Nero. And he's giving his final charges uh, to the churches that would follow after him, specifically to Timothy and Ephesus. And uh, that he knows the time of his departure is at hand. And so uh, we're going to read this together, as it says. And, and when I say that, I mean, I'll read it. You can follow along with me. I'm, messed up and we've all tried reading it together it doesn't go well um especially you got different versions and you know adam doesn't know how to read so he's just watermelon cantaloupe watermelon cantaloupe it doesn't work that way but um here we go paul an apostle of jesus christ by the will of god according to the promise of life which is in christ jesus to timothy a beloved son grace mercy and peace from god the father in christ jesus our lord I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. 
And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God will perhaps grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so did these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, 
and that from childhood you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And then today's text. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I've left with Carpus at Troas when you come. And the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eusebulus greets you, as well as Pudimus. Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Amen. Two amens. There was a false amen there. That was the real one. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Perhaps no better time than the present to have gone through the pastoral epistles. And as we continue to pray for the next uh, book that we would go through, most possibly Titus, the final pastoral epistle uh, written to pastors and leaders of the church. You know, as John Stott said, really, there may be no better time than the present to be going through the pastoral epistles. Of course, he wrote that in the 60s. I think it's just as good for us to be going through and to be finishing up this book now. And and I don't know about you, but as we went through chapter 3 and we looked at the the importance of the inspired scripture and, and how profitable it is for the local church as Preachers preach the word, it convinces, it rebukes, it exhorts as a pastor is faithful to his duty. It equips the man of God for every good work. 
And here we are in a day where about half the population is unreached with the gospel. And about half of that half is completely untouched with people who are even, they're even thinking about going to those people to reach them with the gospel. There is still a task at hand that must be finished. So not only in a missionary context is it necessary that we know what we should believe so that we can go and preach to people what should be believed in all matters of life and godliness. But also in our culture, as we've had much discussion at our home group recently, that we live in such an age of darkness. A day is like the days of Noah, as Jesus said. The days like the end times will be dark, uh, as the days of Noah were. No doubt sharing similarities to the days of Paul, uh, to the days of Rome, to the days that go before Rome, to the days of of the Grecians and the Medo-Persians to the days of the Babylonians. There's always been wickedness, of course, but those days of wickedness will increase. And so as Paul says in the, in the first epistle to the Corinthians, because of this present distress, man, there is a life that Christians ought to be living, a life that would be effective and undistracted, a, a life that would be towing the line of truth and righteousness. And I don't know if maybe these articles have always come across my desk and it's only that I'm, you know, maybe sensitive because of the Timothy epistle. But man, are you noticing the, the liberal preachers? You know, are, are you noticing the, the, um, the preachers even within well-known uh, denominations that once had a beautiful heritage of truthiness and how they are, they are now twisting the truth They're getting away from proper interpretations. They're getting away from the historical orthodox understanding of scripture. And they're going away from these things within whether it's Lutheranism, whether it's within even the Baptist denominations. No doubt Calvary chapels have their own people who are wandering. And you're getting preachers that will sit there and say that, for instance, pornography is completely okay to view as long as it's ethically sourced. Okay. Or you're getting, and this is, this is all major news, all right? So like, read your newspapers, people, all right? Uh, although your pastor might embarrass you sometimes, so don't read the local one. Go, go national, okay? <laughs> or, for instance, major preachers within, uh, with, which in, within huge churches who are now not only divorced and continuing on the, in the ministry, and not that there's not some sort of grace for that, but in that they are now homosexual, and they're totally okay announcing that that's okay and that God's cool with that. Uh, they're also okay saying that it's cool to have multiple uh, relationships at one time, to have open relationships, and to be proud about it, and to be preaching that that's an okay thing. And so I hope that you're beginning to notice that within Christendom, there is an erosion of the value of the Word of God. And so it is necessary that we be in an epistle like 2 Timothy, where chapter 1, verse 10 gives us the key verse, and it tells us this good thing that's been entrusted to you, guard it. Toe the line. All right? Know your history. Know it is and what it is that you believed in and where it's come from and guard that good deposit that's been given to you. It's the word of God, guys. 
So much so that even a well-known worship leader, and I'm not going to throw her under the bus, beautiful voice, beautiful songs, we've sung them, recently asked what her view is on homosexuality, and she would say, who am I, God? I don't know what God's position is on it. So if you find out, tell me, because we're all just learning. I've found out, let's tell her. Because the Bible makes it very clear. Not just homosexuality, but any immorality, any unrighteousness. We don't have pet sins we pick on people. We come to the word of God. We let the word of God show us who we are like a mirror. And when we see the blemishes and how we don't line up, then we appeal to God's grace and mercy and forgiveness to be washed of our sins and then the filling of the Holy Spirit so that now we can obey and we can go out and we can help others to know so that they could be forgiven and that they could obey, thus glorifying God and displaying his gospel to the rest of the world. So it's a good book to be in. It's been a good book. We're wrapping it up today. It's like saying goodbye to a friend, isn't it? Perhaps it feels that way because it was Paul's last epistle written from the Mamertine prison there in Rome, written just, you know, uh, perhaps days or weeks before his beheading because of the testimony of the Lord Jesus. And maybe just reading it all through one time with me, maybe that helped you feel that a little bit more as you hear just those final words of Paul. Since I called it in my high school pastor days, this is the final pulse of Paul, and we're hearing his heart for the church. And so he says in our text today in verse 6 that I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Oh, what a beautiful picture. Five years earlier when Paul wrote the epistle to the Philippians, he wrote something that's always been in my heart since I taught Philippians the first time. There in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. What an awesome picture. He knew five years ago that he is being poured out, and then it's the time to be poured out, as he writes 2 Timothy. That picture of libation, perhaps you've heard that word before, speaks of the pouring out of an offering to God. You know, my mind kind of goes to some of those, uh, you know, those battlefield scenes where, where the men bury their you know, their brother in arms, and as they bury him, you know, they pour a drink out on the ground and toast to him, you know, in a sense, that was libation, but here Paul says, you know what, just as you would pour out oil on a sacrifice in the Old Testament, there was a sweet-smelling aroma to God, so is my life that oil, so is my life that wine, I am being poured out. Five years earlier, he wrote it with, you know, man, it might be a good number of years left that I've got, and I'm so happy to pour my life out for you. It's really been a theme verse for me as a pastor. In those late nights, in those early mornings, in those weary times, the times that it's tough to be a shepherd, just as the cowboys and shepherds know here, it's tough to be out in the snow, it's tough to be pulling calves in the snow, it's tough to be, you know, uh, to be feeding, and, you know, it's just, you know, you got to go in season and out. As a farmer, as a rancher, you know it. There's tough times. There's times that you feel like you're just being poured out. And Paul says, hey, I am glad to do it. Happy to do it. And now that time's fully come. Perhaps he has in mind the, the method of his death. He knows because he's a Roman that he won't go to the games in the Colosseum. He knows he won't be fed to the lions. He's got Roman rights, but the Roman right means that his death will be one of beheading. A swift, fast death. 
Perhaps he has in mind the blood that would pour forth during that death, and he would literally be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and on the service of the faith. And I am so glad for the sacrifice and the service of the apostles. Aren't you? Aren't you glad of the sacrifice of men like Paul? Aren't you glad of the sacrifice of men like Timothy? What wonderful forefathers we have. I'm so thankful. And they exist today as well. He says, it's true that the time of my departure is at hand. He knows that it's the season of death. As Ecclesiastes says, there's a season for everything under heaven, even a time to die. And he knows that it's his time. The time of his departure is at hand. This departure, the language comes from the ship and how with departure, the anchor is pulled up and it's time to set off. And Paul knows that his anchor is coming up. It will be time for him to set off. And his heart about this, well, we see it in Philippians chapter one, where he writes about man, you know, as he was in prison in in, uh, in Rome, as he wrote to the Philippians, he says at the end of verse 20, oh, if Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live, it's Christ. I've got a purpose here in this life. To die, that's even better. To die is gain. If I live on in the flesh, it will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I can choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh, it's more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And this was five years before he would be departing And being with Christ, which was far better, he said. The Apostle Peter had his own moment of contemplating his departure. Look at 2 Peter 1.14 as he writes, Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So Paul would put off as a ship. Peter would put off as a tent. Speaks of a soldier pulling up the tent pegs. And Peter remembers when the Lord showed him what manner of death he would die. Charles Spurgeon wrote of his moments of his glorious departure, where he said, to come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after the long harbor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes time of my departure is at hand. In verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul, with his athletic illustrations, he's always loved him and he uses them in his last letter with agon kalos agonizomai. Fight the good fight. To agonize. I have struggled and I have fought and I have strived and I have competed As he says in the first epistle to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight, lay hold on eternal life, Timothy. And now he can say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've finished the mission. 
It's significant that Paul makes no claim that he won the race by any means. He's happy that he stayed the course and that he finished the race. And yet his goal was always to win. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you'll read it, please don't let these verses just go in one ear and out the other. These are special verses just showing that this guy had a purpose in his heart by the Spirit and by grace. And at the end of his life, by the Spirit and by grace, he did it. He did it. And it's possible for us. As, as he says, don't you know that those who run in a race all run, everyone's running, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it for a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, and thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I myself might become disqualified. Paul had a purpose of disciplining himself, of agonizing, of fighting that fight, of running the race to win it. Even Jesus had that task. And I believe that's where Paul got it from. As Jesus said, my food's not to do, rather my food is to do the will of him who sent me and that I could finish his work. John the Revelator was one who finished his course, the book of Acts says. And the book of Acts chapter 20, when it's prophesied that Paul would be imprisoned for the faith, and people are crying and begging him not to go because his life was in danger, Paul says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy. Isn't it neat to read kind of the hope from Acts chapter 20 and then what happened in 2 Timothy chapter 4? Oh, I just want to finish this race with joy and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In Philippians chapter 3.13, Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the most high God, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Run the race to win. And finally here, just real quick, you can't think of the running of the race and not go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, where Possibly Paul. I think it was Paul, but not, no one really knows whoever wrote this. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and the idea is that he's running in the Olympic Games, and, and that there's this cloud of the runners who've gone before, and they're cheering you on. Since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. And so it's been said that the Christian run, it's not a sprint. It's an endurance race. If the Lord tarries, we've got a lot of time ahead of us, friends. Run with endurance the race that's been set before us. And as you're making that sprint, look toward the goal. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. 
I have kept the faith. Paul has guarded that good thing, that good deposit. Now he passes it on to Timothy to keep and to obey the trustworthy doctrines of the Lord Jesus. Those doctrines that are not one thing in one culture and another thing in another culture, but they're eternal doctrines. Doctrines of orthodox Christianity. It's called faith which speaks of that which can be believed. It's true, and it's trustworthy, and Paul kept it. As the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, even though they had little strength, they kept the word and have not denied God's name. Every Christian in general and every leader in particular should take heed here. There's a fight to endure, there's a race to be run, and there's a treasure to guard. Are you fighting? Are you fighting? Get in the ring. Are you running? Get in the race. Are you guarding the good word of God? It's time to guard it. Verse 8, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but all who've loved his appearing. There's this crown of righteousness. It speaks of a reward that is a reserved prize. It's a Stephanos in the Greek, which speaks of the wreath-style crown of the Olympic Games. And Paul knows that one day it will be given to him. It's been laid up for him. It's been reserved for him when he stands before the righteous judge. Now, he's just stood before the corrupt judge, the tyrant Caesar Nero, and now he knows that it will be soon. He'll be face-to-face with Jesus, and Jesus will judge in rightness, in righteousness. It's the judgment that we know from the New Testament to be called the Bema Seat Judgment. Now, there's two judgments in the New Testament. There's uh, the judgment before the great white throne that we read of in Revelation chapter 20. And that is a judgment where uh, everyone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ stands before God in his great white throne. And they may try to give every defense under the sun to display their own righteousness before God. But Romans tells us that their mouth will be stopped and every man will be found a liar, that they are not self-righteous, but rather that they are spiritually bankrupt. And Revelation chapter 20 tells us that books will be opened. It's believed that those books are the books of the law, Moses, the books of Moses that tell the righteous standards of God. And then the books of people's actions will be opened to see, hey, how did you measure up according to the righteous standards of God? And the book of Romans tells us that no one will be found righteous by the works of their flesh because nobody could ever keep the law because they were weak in the flesh. That leads to the third book that will be open. It's believed that's the book of the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life is written with the names of those who realize I could never keep the commandments of God, not even on my best day. I'm too much of a rebel. I'm too much of a sinner. 
And I might keep all of those things, but stumble in one point, and it's just, I, it's, I've broken all of them. And so I appeal to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, into his blood that was shed for me on the cross, where the just was sacrificed for the unjust, where Jesus Christ died for Rory Rogers, a sinner. I need his blood to cover my sin and to wash away my sin. The Bible tells us that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus, the names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And you know, at the end of the day in Revelation chapter 20, as the great white throne judgment is happening, people will try to give their defense and it just comes down to, hey, what have you done with my son Jesus? It says here in the book that you thought you could make it on your own and you didn't need such a pathetic Jesus, that you were better than my way. And anyone whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And so I would ask you today, one day, which judgment will you go to? Will you go to the great white throne judgment because you've never believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? You've never put your trust in him? You've never declared him to be both Christ and Kyrios, which in the Greek means Lord and Savior of your life? A lot of Americans love the idea of God being Savior. Yep, he's my Savior. He's washed away my sin, but they hate the idea of him being my Lord. No way I'm bowing down to his will. Uh, Acts chapter 2, the Lord has made him Lord and Christ. He's got to be both or he's neither. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And if it is, you won't be at the great white throne judgment. Praise God, you'll be at the Bema seat judgment. Bema is a word taken from the, the athletic games, from the Olympics. And it's a reward-style judgment. You know how it is. They've got the stairs. One, two, three people are given the crowns or the medals. And it's here at the Bema Seat Judgment where everyone who's a believer will give an account of themselves to God. And they will be given rewards based on the things that they have done for the Lord and for His glory and for His fame. We see this in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 15, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 9 through 11. And we know from the New Testament that crowns will be given to those who, in our text today, have loved his appearing. We'll look at that in a second. But we also see in 2 Timothy 2, 5, we just read it, crowns are given to those who compete according to the rules. And all of you competing today, are you competing according to the rules? Or are you tossing out the rule book? crown will be given to those who compete according to the rules in James chapter 1 verse 12 whoever endures temptation will receive the crown of life and not only if it is it if they endure temptation but it's for those who love him you love him you endure temptation there will be a crown of life waiting for you Peter tells us in chapter 5 of first Peter that faithful elders will receive a crown of glory that will not fade away. Paul tells, I think it's the Thessalonians, that, that our crown and reward of rejoicing is you all in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his appearing. What a reward. The people that you've ministered and poured your life out to, they're with you, worshiping the Lord in paradise. What a wonderful reward that is. We see in Revelation chapter 2 that 
Those with crowns and rewards will take them and cast them before the throne of God, giving him glory. We realize any reward we get, it's because of the grace of God in the first place. And we just throw it all before him and give him glory for anything good that's come out of this pathetic life. And in our text today, the crown isn't reserved just for the Apostle Paul, he says, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's been a theme of the last three weeks. As Paul has written this final chapter with an eternal mindset and with a mindset of the imminent return of Christ Jesus. In our home groups and in our discussions, we've been discussing about that heart that longs for the return of Jesus. A heart that loves the appearing of Jesus. As Matthew chapter 24 tells us in verse 48, the wicked servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming. Now I want to ask you something. When you think about eternity and you think about Jesus coming back, honestly, where is your mind? Do you think, as Peter tells us, as those who say, he delays it, whatever. He's always said he's coming back. It won't be in my lifetime. That is a wicked heart. It is a heart that doesn't understand the long-suffering of God who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he has been long-suffering in his tarrying, but he's still coming. And the wicked servant says in his heart, it won't be today, and it won't be in my lifetime. In fact, he's not even coming. Prominent church doctrine in many churches today. Matthew tells us, therefore, in chapter 25, verse 13, that we ought to watch, for we don't know the day or the hour that the Son of Man is coming. Watch, be waiting, be looking up, keep oil in your lamp, keep it burning, 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 am I right? as those wise virgins did in chapter 25 of Matthew. That we would have a heart like Revelation chapter 22, John the Revelator shouting out after Jesus says, surely I'm coming quickly. The Revelator says, even so come. Even so come. When was the last time you prayed that? When was the last time you looked up? When was the last time that you had a fear in your heart, as 1 John chapter 3 tells us, that any who's awaiting his appearing purifies himself just as he is pure, so that we might not be ashamed at his coming? Do you have any care for the coming of the Lord? Do you have any love for the coming of the Lord? I have to admit, man, my early days as a Christian freshman in high school, being a part of the Calvary Chapel movement that appreciated and loved the idea of the rapture of the church, Having prophecy updates, wonderful things can get a little crazy, can be a bit of a distraction. But a wonderful heart that the Lord is coming soon. When we get away from a love for that, the Bible tells us that our lifestyle becomes carnal. But whoever has the hope of his return purifies himself just as he is pure. As we move on, verses 9 through 15 and 19 through 21 tell us the importance of Christian relationships. As he says to Timothy in verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly. Do your best to get here soon. My time, I don't have long. Get here fast. I want to see you one last time. John Stott notes that a trust in the Lord and a desire for friendship is not incompatible. He writes, 
One sometimes meets super spiritual people who claim that they never feel lonely and have no need for friends. For the companionship of Christ satisfies all their needs. But human friendship is the loving provision of God for mankind. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, it is grace, grace, so much grace that we would be saved into a body of believers and have one another. Verse 10 says, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Demas. While people can be wonderful sources of joy, man, they can be major sources of grief. The word deserted here is a strong verb, meaning that Demas utterly abandoned and left Paul helpless in a dire situation. Some friend. Some friend. Colossians says that at one point, Demas was with Luke, the beloved physician, and that Demas was greeting the Colossian church. Philemon says that, that Demas and Luke were fellow laborers together with Paul. You don't have to be in ministry very long before you have the Demases come along. Demases are all the time. But with the Demases, and before I move on, but with the Demases come the Marks and the Lukes, as we'll read. But, but Demas loved this present world. Demas had misplaced affections. He was a lover of himself, perhaps a lover of money. He was a lover of comfort rather than a lover of God. It was believed that he just couldn't handle the persecution and had to get away. Chapter 3 tells us that in the end times, perilous days will come because men are of misplaced affections. And Demas was one of those. Then he goes on and lists a couple more guys that, that you know, in the reading, it seems like they're also forsakers. But as you study it, these guys were actually sent out as missionaries and hadn't abandoned Paul. You've got Cretans, or Cretans, how I'm saying it, of Galatia. It's the only mention of Cretans in the whole New Testament. Titus. Uh, went to Dalmatia as a missionary. Also, Paul would say in the next epistle, he's a true son in the faith, an equipper of leaders. We'll be moving on in the epistles, most likely, unless the Lord changes our direction. We'll be looking at Titus. But he says here, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Man, Luke was always Paul's traveling companion, the writer of the book of Acts, the author of the gospel of Luke. Hughes says, Luke was a tough friend for tough times. He was with Paul in prison from the first time to the last. He was Paul's biographer. And the wee passages of Acts indicate that he was with the apostle during some of his most difficult times. Luke the Evangelist. The Coptic Orthodox Church website says that Luke was also brought before Nero, was accused of spreading the witchcraft of Christianity, and that he had his hand cut off the hand that wrote all of these things about Christ. And the Coptic tradition says that Luke picked up his hand, put it back on again, and miraculously was healed. Then he took it back off to submit to the persecution that took place. And that Luke, uh, rather, don't let me jump the gun, but that Nero's, one of Nero's wives and many that witnessed this became believers in Jesus at that moment and that they were all uh, uh, martyred at that moment with Luke that Luke's body was put into a hair sack bag uh, and tossed into the ocean 
where it washed up on a shore. A believer found it, and it was buried in a special place. Fox's Book of Martyrs just simply says that Luke was hung by an olive tree. I'll let you do your research. What do you think? You know, you got, woo, and then you got olive tree, you know. So neither one, all that glamorous, but how wonderful that Luke, and, and think of that when you read the Gospel of Luke this Christmas season, one of the best accounts by, an, by a physician to write with the intent that Jesus is man and God. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for ministry. Mark's story is so encouraging because he started out with many incredible privileges. His mother's home is believed to have been the main place for Jerusalem meetings in the early church. That the Last Supper took place there, that the day of Pentecost took place there. It's believed that in Mark's gospel, when you read of the Garden of Gethsemane account, that the naked boy that ran away was Mark himself. He was young, about 16 of the time, wrapped in a bedcloth, watching the betrayal of Christ, running away, that, the, that a Roman guard, or rather a, a temple guard, grabbed the garment from um, Mark, and he ran away naked. Later, he would become very useful in the ministry, being Barnabas's cousin. He went on the first missionary journey with Saul and Barnabas, uh, but that it, early on in the missionary trip, he abandoned the team because it got too hard. And at the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul didn't want to go on another trip taking Mark with him. And so him and Barnabas got in a fight because we're not taking Mark with us. And Barnabas says, he's my cousin. I got to take care of him. He's going with us. He's an awesome guy. And so Paul, uh, Saul and Barnabas split ways because of this. Later on in the ministry, that we see that Mark and, and Paul somehow became friends again and in the ministry together and Paul would say in his final words bring him he's useful for me in the ministry how encouraging how many of us are marks john marks just like it got tough i didn't go again i didn't couldn't do it i'm useless and then the lord says oh you're so useful and uh useful for the ministry and so it's interesting let me let me show you here and we have a graphic to show on the on the uh, screen here where we have almost a battery, all right? We got plus, plus, minus, plus, plus, minus, 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 okay? We've got some plus pluses in the group. We got Timothy, faithful son. Titus, faithful comforter. Tychicus, faithful messenger with a great name. Crescens, faithful unknown. An unknown guy, but faithful. Luke, faithful friend. Carpus, faithful host. Got a guy that had some rough times, but it ended positively. Mark, he was unfaithful. But he was restored. What encouraging thing for us. We've got Demas that started out faithful, but then became an unfaithful deserter. And then as we move on, we're going to read of Alexander, a faithless opponent. As you move on, uh, uh, later on in verse, I think it's 19, he speaks of Alexander. Wrapping up today, verse 13 says, Bring the cloak that I've left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books especially the parchment. A cloak, of course, it doesn't take a genius to figure out. It's an outer garment made of heavy material with a hole cut in the middle that you just put your head through. He needed something warm. And today, I encourage you, go online, start looking. I've got pictures today of the Mamertine prison. This is the actual prison, the dungeon. These are the rocks. Oh, that's a, actually a drawing, just in case you can't tell the difference between. Uh, this is the Mamertine prison, you guys. This is where Paul spent a long time. Normally, the Mamertine prison was just a quick stop for people who are on their way to be executed. But Paul spent uh, a, a good amount of months 
in this prison among these walls. The Mamertine prison was deep underground. It was very dark. It was very cold. There was only this grated window at the top to let in any fresh air uh, or any light. And in many seasons, this cell would get knee high with Roman sewage. And it's believed that it was in this cell that Paul wrote many of his epistles, including Luke writing the book of Acts with him uh, and 2 Timothy. So you're seeing the stones where the book we're reading was written. Isn't that exciting? He says, so don't, you know, it's cold here. It's cold underground. It's cold. Bring my cloak and especially bring me my books and my parchments, probably scriptures, perhaps Roman documents, perhaps his accounts of what he's lived through and with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but as I read this, I just see a man. I see a man who's in prison. He's Paul the Apostle. We love him. You're amazing. You must be like superhuman. He's human. He's cold. He wants a clothes. He wants a blanket with a hole cut out in the middle so he can put his head through it. He wants his books. He realized the importance of being a reader. Just a man, though. The best men are men at best. Reminds me of William Tyndale, who was the father of the English Bible. In 1536, he was convict, uh, convicted of heresy and executed by strangulation. Then his body was burnt. Later on, his bones would be dug up and poured into the river Swiss. Swiss. Swift. Whatever. <laughs> like you guys even know where that is. Okay. His dying prayer, William Tyndale's dying prayer, was that the king of England's eyes would be opened. And this seemed to find its fulfillment just two years later when Henry authorized the writing of the great Bible for the Church of English, England, which was largely Tyndale's own work. It was missing sections and supplemented with translation by Miles Cloverdale, but it was a Tyndale Bible, as it's known. And it had a key role in spreading Reformation ideas throughout English-speaking countries. Listen to this. In 1611, the 54 scholars who produced the King James Bible drew significantly from Tyndale, as well as from translations that descended from his. One estimate suggests that the New Testament in the King James Version is 83% Tyndale's, and the Old Testament is 76%. His translation of the Bible was the first to be printed in English and became a model for subsequent English translations. In 2002, Tyndale was placed at number 26 in the BBC's poll of 100 Greatest Britons. But he lived a life much like Paul's, and he had an end much like Paul's. Listen to uh, uh, Handley Mool, Bishop Mool's description of Tyndale's final time. In 1535, immured by the prosecutor at Vilvoord in Belgium, Tyndale wrote not long before his fiery martyrdom a Latin letter to the Marquis of Bergen, governor of the castle. Quote, I entreat your lordship to be so kind, or rather, I entreat your lordship and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I must remain here for the winter, you would beg the commissary to be so kind as to send for me from the things of mine which he has a warmer cap. I feel the cold painfully in my head, also a warmer cloak, for the cloak I have is very thin. He has a woolen shirt of mine if he will send it. But most of all, my Hebrew Bible, grammar, and vocabulary, that I may spend my time in that pursuit. 
And so as we think of Paul and his final words and his time in the Mamertine prison, as we read of William Tyndale, can I just urge you to be those, as Hebrews 13 says, we pray for those who are in chains. Because these are not unique experiences. These are experiences of those suffered all over the world for the name of Christ. Can I just encourage you as a Christian to do some homework and some footwork to get on voiceofthemartyrs.com and to begin looking at the faces and the names and the news articles of Christians that are suffering persecution, being expelled from their churches, having their churches burned down, having their pastors put in graves with guns to their heads, having their husbands slaughtered before them, having their own children die Asian women having their mothers put nails to their eyes so that they can't read the Bible anymore. This is happening all over the world, and we are so ignorant of it as the, ch uh, as the church. Can I plead with you to be praying for the unreached people groups of this world, to download Voice of the Martyrs app on your phone, the Joshua Project app on your phone, to get the prayer for the unreached people group of the day on your phone, because it is in those unreached people groups where the most persecution is happening, where you'll begin to see, as we did of the, of the Algerians this week, as we did of a Tibetan group north of Nepal in China this week, 1.5 million Christians and one one-hundredth of a percent of them, uh, what, what did I say, 1.5 million people in this Tibetan people group and only 136 Christians in this whole population. Pray for the unreached. Pray for the persecuted church. They're cold. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're sad that their dad was just killed. Let's pray for the persecuted church. And we'll have the worship team come on up. As Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his words. And beware of him. He's out there. He's greatly resisted our words. He writes about his first hearing before Nero that when he was there, none were there with him. It's customary to have your friends there as moral support. No friends were there. And as you study, some of them just couldn't be there. Some of them wouldn't have anything to offer being there. And some were just terrified that they too would be put in prison. No one stood with me. May it not be charged against them. Alexander the coppersmith? Oh, the Lord judged that guy. Snake! But those Christians that, man, I get it. It's tough. It's tough to be persecuted. Lord, don't hold it against them. Anyways, verse 17, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He stood with me and strengthened me so that the message of the gospel could be preached before Caesar Nero, which in a sense is the hub to all of the Gentiles in the world. And it was at that moment that I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Verse 18, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil. And preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. What hope he has looking forward. To him be the glory forever and ever. Greet Prisca and Aquila, or we know them as Priscilla and Aquila, great friends of Paul, tent makers, fellow laborers, missionaries. Greet the household of Anisiphorus. Oh, Paul loved Anisiphorus, wrote about him at the end of chapter 1. Erastus stayed in Corinth. Trophimus I've left in Miletus sick. Timothy, do your most to come before winter. The shipping lanes are going to be closed because of bad weather. I need my cloak. I might not even live that long. Get over here, buddy. 
Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens. Linus, I believe that Linus was probably the bishop that came up after, um, after Paul and Peter died, that Linus would have taken over the church in Rome. Claudio and all the brethren. Final verse, are you guys ready for it? The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. After Timothy had visited Paul in Rome, he returned to Ephesus, where he continued to govern the church as its bishop without the least interruption. And why don't you guys stand? Without the least bit of interruption for a considerable time, till at length he fell victim to the malice of the pagans who were his most invenerable enemies. These heathen made a great feast in the celebration of which they carried in procession the images of their idols, being all masked and armed with clubs and other offensive weapons. Timothy, seeing the procession, was so irritated at their idolatry and superstition that he rushed in among them in order to stop their proceedings, among whom they immediately fell upon him, and with their clubs beat him in so unmerciful a manner that he soon expired. They left the body on the spot where they murdered him, which was removed thence by some of his disciples and decently interred in the top of a mountain at a small distance from the city. The Greeks commemorate Timothy's martyrdom on the 23rd of January, the day on which it's supposed that he gave up his life in defense of the doctrine he had long labored to propagate, and during which time he brought over a great number of people to embrace the truth of the Christian religion. Lord, as we wrap up this book, we're aware of our current climate in the United States. We're aware of the status of the church in the utter disregard for the authority of the word of God upon the life of Christians and non-Christians alike. And Lord, in it all, we want to be those whose eyes are fixed to the heavens saying, even so, come Lord Jesus Come quickly. But in the meantime, we will be those who value the word of God and guard the good deposit so that we could know what we need to believe and how we could behave for the glory of God among the nations. We look up. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Close us in song, John.